0: In the year 2008, a man is about to do a stretch of five years in a South California prison. Standing at only five foot, eight inches tall with 63 years behind him, he seems a far cry from the small town Italian boy of Rome, New York, or even from the young man who had grown to build a multi-million dollar insurance agency, only to have it stripped away before his very eyes. He now stands a man whose adversities have thrown him into an extraordinary life of crime and into the sphere of men like Frank Costello, Russell Buffalino, Meyer Lansky, and the infamous underboss Sonny Francesi, a man who will come to be known as the Accidental Gangster. This is the legend of Orlando Ori Spado.
1: I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. The Gangster Era is coming. Five feuds of public
2: enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police.
1: How did this kind famous of gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you what I'm exposing. This is my doom, 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 doom. Nothing with that guy. <laughs> so did he private message you, or did he do it publicly? It was posted.
0: I saw that. He did was trying you? to drop. Yeah, he was dropping hints about who he was and saying a yeah. little bit of like covert stuff so you'd know who he was.
1: Yeah. And I wrote sticks. back. Yeah, oh, okay. Now I know who you are. I mean, his father's <laughs> murder was on my indictment and not two other guys today you know and today in today's world people are adoring informants yeah
3: that's we've talked things. about that on our show before yeah did you yeah, yeah. yeah. oh I'm, America loves a
1: rat I like America that, loves that. A that's rat. a good film title America loves a rat
0: Okay, that is an excerpt from the interview we did with Ori Spado. Believe it or not, he agreed to do this show. (laughs) It was his idea. It was his idea. It it was interesting. Uh, Probably at least 80% of the people listening to this podcast are doing so because I personally stalked them down and invited (laughs) them to listen. I actually do this all day long. Anybody that follows on Instagram or talks to me, I... uh, If I don't grab the phone out of their hand and put it in their hand personally, you know, I'll send everybody a DM or whatever. Anybody I think might be interested in stuff. So uh, it was a long time ago. I was surfing and I I was doing uh, some kind of research on gangsters like I always do. And uh, the accidental gangster comes up, right? I'd never heard of Ori or anything. I look at a few things and stuff and he reminds me of my uncle George, you know? And uh, who was, yeah, who was actually like my grandmother's brother. But it's the same guy, man. I mean, the same voice, the same inflections, and everything. So, kind of drew me in. And then I start hearing his story, and you're getting all these names, and you know, all, all the great stuff that is the legend of Ori Spado. So, I send him a DM with the link to the podcast, which was uh, Glanny. Is that right, Joshua? Yep. thanks so I sent him the link, you know and I'm like hey uh, we do a podcast you probably like it never expecting to hear from this guy it's it's not that long and and this is typical of the guy we're gonna explain to you he texts me right back and is like how the hell do I listen to this thing so I have a I'm starting to type out the instructions on what he's gotta do to find this and everything and he's like yeah I got it I got it I got it and then uh, I don't know how much time passes but maybe another day or two he's like it's a great show let's do a podcast (laughs) yeah i'm like well of course we'll do a podcast so uh, just one thing leads to another and stuff and all along i'm thinking at some point as publicist or somebody's gonna go you don't need these guys he never does and uh he ends up just being a a great guy like i don't know the impression you get from him uh he kind of came on the scene this year right yeah it's it's like after the vlad interview really
3: The, the interviews i saw were all within the past year or so
0: yeah, where he's just exploded on the scene where I think he was totally under the radar. And, and it's a good story and stuff, but he's also a great personality, a great talker. And uh, he's going to be even more on the scene. I think by next year, everybody in the country's going to know who this guy is. You know what I mean? Because he's just got that personality and stuff. Well, he's, the book already came out. Now, this is the revised version of the book, which I, it's, it's out now. I guess we're going to get our copy sent. Anyway, it, it goes on and on with the direct message, and then finally I get his email address, and I'm like, man, it's still on. I think we're gonna do this. At this point, we're in the middle of maybe Tony Ducks or something, so it's not convenient to do it right then. I'm gonna get him in before Vito Genovese, and then I think him and his publicists put their heads together and decided like, uh, right before the book comes out, they're just gonna do a blitz and do a ton of interviews and stuff. So we kind of fall into that. You know, you're going to see Spado everywhere. And we were kind of locked into that same thing. The first time I call Ori, you know, he sends me his phone number and says, let's talk. Because I'm trying to explain to him that our show isn't an interview show. This is what he does. This is his comfort zone. I'm like, we do totally different. And, you know, we do music and sound effects and we do a legend. Like, uh, it's, it's going to be totally different than you're used to. So he's like, call me. We'll, we'll figure this out. So uh, I can't remember the exact conversation, but at some point I started doing the commercial for him, which I just did, you know, because I, I want this guy to succeed, I like him. So uh, I do this commercial and I'm like, yeah, I'll play it before my show, you know, what, why not? So I call Ori, and you know, you can imagine the amount of calls this guy gets a day. Yeah. And uh, we'll get into this, but he is the busiest <laughs> man. So I call him out of the blue, never talk to him, and he answers the phone and says, Bill! He says, "Hey, I really like the commercial you did for me. I appreciate that, you know. And it's just, and that is the kind of man this guy is. It's like I say, he's just a great guy. And, and like I said, and the relationships just kind of built. And uh, I think anybody that deals with this guy, for the most part, is is going to consider him a friend in a very short time because he's just got that." kind of personality and stuff so even though there's a lot of interviews out a lot of people are going to do them i really feel like what we've done is going to be different we're going Ours to tell it different yeah, yeah we're going to tell it like we do it i don't know that we've ever spent more time preparing for yeah. a show you know because usually uh we, we try to do our research and stuff but we got about a week usually to do yeah. this and if if it took longer it's not because we were working on it; it's because we were working on something else we but this what two three weeks in uh oh yeah and it was all the king's horses and all the king's men. We don't really talk about how the show happens much. We start researching. We watch everything we can. We read everything we can. And uh, once we start putting it together, usually Zach will write the script. Once he puts that out, he'll shoot it to me, and then I'll change it. And then we go over it again. And that's, this is kind of how it works. So when we did this one, Zach was writing the script. I was watching everything. Zach was watching everything. Joshua, the intern... Who we give a hard time.
3: He put in work. (laughs)
0: yeah but he 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 can dig in when you need him and he worked his ass off he went through every single ori spado interview and not only wrote bullet points and highlights and stuff but he had key things for when we did ours really laid it out and kudos to joshua on this one like told
3: us what to not talk about
0: yeah like he's like don't talk about this it's a waste of time or every interview asked him this you don't need that he's already done that you've got that information this is a beef he's got with some guy don't don't it. You know, he's like, it's been done and it's it's going nowhere. And uh, our whole thing is we're going to, if we figure we're going to get Ori for about an hour and we don't want to waste 10 minutes because it's, it's all pressure. We want to get the shit that nobody else has gotten in the shit we want to do to really tell the story of who this guy is. And Joshua was spot on. Like, I think everything he told us to do and not do was great advice. So kudos to Joshua on this.
3: Yeah. Being down in the meat cellar, my thumbs may not be working, but... Every other part of me is. You might be. You might be on your way out. No.
0: Hanging in the meat cellar by your thumbs. It, it gives a guy time to think. <laughs> Joshua, I think it was. Uh, I think it was the best thing for you. And we'll keep that in mind if there's uh, future discipline problems. Yeah. Anyway, that's kind of how it goes down. So at the end, I end up uh, calling Ori and explaining one more time. So the day of it, I'm like, okay, here's the crew. And I introduce like who Brett is and how you guys do other podcasts and what you do and who Zach is and who Joshua is and that they're all going to be there in this meeting. And uh, we're all going to sit down and we're just going to talk. And I'm like, the strange thing to you is that we're going to run through this script and we're going to have you comment on whether or not the information's accurate. And if it's wrong, this is the time we need to know, or if you can elaborate. And it's going to be very informal. We're all going to sit around and talk. And I said, I'm going to get you out in an hour. So the first question, he's like, so when are we doing this? I'm like, we're figuring 6 o'clock our time. It'll be about 3 o'clock your time. He's like, man, that's no good. Because <laughs> like, in my mind, this like is... Here it is. In my mind, this is a really considerate time because, like, he can do this, and I'll get him out of there for dinner, right? He's like, "This is like my naivety with the guy. Uh, he's busy." You know, and I've just planted our show in the middle of his freaking day. <laughs> and He's yeah. like, could you be more inconvenient to me right now? Right. So I'm like, well, when do you want to do it? And he's like in the morning. I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. You know, because uh, I, I have other things I do, you know, yeah. that I can't get out of. Let's just put it that way. I have other responsibilities that weigh heavier than this show. So I'm like, man, I, I can't do that. Like, how about we push it back an hour? <laughs> get you, I'll get you to four. So he's like, fine, you know, we'll do four. All right. And I think that's one of the first things he did was chide me about the time. Like, when we started, he's like, you know, he brought up the pad the timing yeah, that I laid on up. him <laughs> immediately. Yeah. You know, just kind of busted my balls a little bit about it in a friendly way. So it, it went, and I, I felt like it went really good. We got to know him, and uh, right. a lot of it was digging for information, but then a lot of it was just personal you know, and just a bunch of guys sitting around talking and stuff. So uh, it lasted two and a half to three hours.
3: I think it was uh,
0: 2.35. It got us later into the night than we thought, and everybody's beat by the time it's over. Just a uh, perfect Ori. The next day, he sends me an email and tells me how much fun he had and blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's who he is. You you could tell he mean? had fun. Yeah, he seemed like he was having a good time.
3: Uh, like like in the Vlad interview. Happy to be there.
0: It was a uh, formal and I think a lot of his is, he's, and he's having a good time. He likes talking about this stuff and yeah. everything, but yeah, I felt like, I felt like he opened up and was just uh, over, we had him relaxed and stuff. Yeah. So to that note, uh, one of the arrangements I had with Ori is that we're going to do this story. And I'm like, and what we read to you may not be the story. So it's really kind of, I'm like, it's kind of like watching sausage get made and I'm promising him that's going to be great. You know, it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. But because I'm going to chop up everything we say and everything you say to us, and it's all going to be reinterpreted. I made it on my word that we're going to put the show together. I'm going to send it to you. And then you are going to reprove every single word of it. And if there's anything you think is wrong and accurate, or you just don't like or wish you hadn't said it, it's out. I don't even need a reason. So that's that's the agreement. So whatever you're hearing now is approved by Ori 100%. And because that's that's just the way we wanna do it. Also, when we made some decisions, like I said, there's two hours and 35 minutes, the show isn't that long and it's not gonna be that long. So we really try to discern what he told us as part of his story and what he told us in a personal conversation. And uh, there, there are some great things he said, but we really have to mull it over and go, you know what, I think at the end of the day, he was saying that personally. He doesn't want that out there. And I think he'd rather he'd not have to go back and listen to that and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, there's a difference between what he said to us professionally without a better word and personally. And if we felt like it was a personal conversation, then we are not going to use it. So that's that's how it goes. But it's going to be a great show and I think a great story. And uh, I hope we do something that uh, everybody enjoys. I think even if you've heard every Ori interview. Because doing this, I listened to everything, read everything, read every article, and I still had a hard time getting from point A to Z in life and what the hell actually happened and and how this happened. So I think we've kind of cleared that up. And so even if you saw it, I think you're going to enjoy this because we're going to tell his story in a more cohesive way that's not going to jump around and go nuts and and go from the past to the present. And I think we can walk you through this and uh, I think it'll be a good deal. Okay, partners in crime, welcome back for a special episode. Sitting to my right, recovering from the ill-fated scripting of Agent Orange Dickey. We might actually be changing his nickname to Agent Dicky. but for now, he's still going to be Zack the Zip Griffith.
3: Uh, I, hope I hope I dodge that nickname.
0: But it's not entirely up to you. <laughs> Nicknames are, are given by your peers. And uh, back... Back from Chicago in his uh, clandestine mission, we we all figure he's got to be making at least $8.50 to give up this sweet gig. Welcome back, Brett Sexton.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, it's uh, good to be back. It was kind of weird taking that break. Missed it. So hopefully I can get back in here and bring some normalcy back to the podcast. And I'm super excited for the episode. So let's jump right in.
0: And as we mentioned, out of the root cellar, back for another shot in the driver's seat, Joshua the Intern. Hello. Good to have you back, Joshua.
3: Good to not have gonorrhea in my eyes.
0: (laughs) We would never do that the first time. No. 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 No, The gonorrhea bandage, that's like like their defense, brother. We wouldn't do that to you. All right. Let's get started.
3: Orlando Ori Spado is born December 17th, 1944 in Rome, New York to parents Joseph and Olivia Spado. One of six children, three sisters, and two brothers, the Spado family hails from Calabria, a southern region in Italy, but now calls Liberty Street its newfound American home. Spado arrives into his world in Rome, New York, just as his fellow Italians in Rome, Italy, are witnessing the arrival of Polish and British allied forces coming off the heels of their victory at the Battle of Monte Cassino. In contrast to its Italian counterpart, Rome, New York is a small city, a combination of suburban houses and commercial high-rises of four to five stories.
0: So right off the bat we we're uh, talking to Ori about his neighborhood and stuff and I was trying to get a sense of it because a lot of our gangster stories start off with like these poor immigrants coming in and they live in squalor and they live in the mean streets of the towns and stuff. So, yeah. you know, the impression I get and he'd said in a few interviews that it wasn't a really tough neighborhood. So then
3: uh, yeah, I didn't get that impression either.
0: Yeah. So yeah. when he described it, he said it was a typical middle class, which it was houses, not apartments and stuff. But he lived in a duplex. Yeah. But it was also a very commercial district. So it's houses. There's the corner store, you know, that's commercial, and and there's high rises, like he said, like four to five stories and stuff. But it's an Italian neighborhood. Uh, Italian is the spoken word. He had commented that he refused to to speak Italian to yeah. his grandparents and stuff. He's like, we're in America. You gotta speak right. He had like television, he remember he was watching Lawrence Welk and stuff, so he's not a poor kid, no. you know what I mean, so it's uh that's kind of the framework you got to deal with here, like you said he had great memory.
3: parents normal normal childhood, yeah,
0: absolutely, no reason to uh anticipate a gangster life yeah. at this point, right,
3: yeah you said he was only in Italy a couple times. he said that, and he, he picked up the language a little bit, he knew what they were saying, yeah, he could speak and, a little bit.
0: Yeah, he could. But yeah, he doesn't even go to Italy a lot. He went twice, he said.
3: Spado's upbringing doesn't foreshadow a future in crime. Joseph and Olivia provide him and his siblings an ordinary childhood with a high emphasis on family, with Olivia making dinner for her own family, as well as her other relatives that live on the other side of the suburban duplex, caring for around 13 people. Knowing little to nothing of his family's involvement in the infamous Cosa Nostra that has been slowly expanding its reach since the turn of the century, Orlando is a bright child and attends public school. While not envisioning a life in organized crime, or he doesn't mind mixing it up a bit and is never one to back away from a schoolyard fight. He develops a reputation for confronting bullies and is often the go-to guy when a student has a problem that requires more than reasonable words. He also picks up the tough kid habit of smoking cigarettes at just 10 years old. His first smoke, fittingly, is a lucky strike.
0: So one of the first things you realize about Ori is he's got a great memory. So we ask him about his first fight. Yeah. Uh, he, he, right off the bat, he didn't even think about it. He's like, I guess it was a guy named Al Ritchie. Yeah. So Al Ritchie's just a neighborhood kid. I think he like lived close by, and uh, yeah. they're, they're friends and stuff. So his first fight was basically with a friend, and uh, we asked who won. And he's like, I think it got broken up. It seemed like the two kids that were big in his life was uh, Al Ritchie and another kid named Arthur. And Arthur was a bigger kid, and I think he was uh, kind of a bullyish kid in the beginning. So that was like probably his second fight was with this Arthur kid who was picking on a smaller boy that couldn't defend himself or whatever. And uh, it seemed like Ori is like a a decent guy. He wants to stick up against bullies and stuff. But I think he also likes to fight. Yeah. And even plight, He goes, yeah, there was uh, fist fights, there were knife fights, all kinds of fights when he was growing up. He
3: said knife fights like it was nothing. Just yeah, like it, it was just nothing. threw it out there. Exactly. I got a knife pulled on me, you know, and I brought a knife next time. So... so- <laughs>
0: and you've heard in other interviews if you're following this they always say he got in fights and he always became friends and, and it's kind of true he's like yeah me and arthur became friends and stuff because as a matter of fact arthur gave me my first cigarette in the yeah. restroom right? yeah. so it was that like the cigarette came from arthur and uh he smokes to this day
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah he does oh yeah
0: so he was putting down the uh winston 100 gold like just chain smoking through this
3: thing it's funny because uh Brett would text me every time he finished one, every time he finished a cigarette. I think he got up to like eight. That's funny because I wasn't
0: <laughs> even noticing. But yeah, these guys are counting the smokes. <laughs> yeah.
3: Eight. I think it was eight.
0: Well, that's because I'm buried in my notes and paperwork <laughs> and uh trying to, to soldier this thing through.
3: Uh, at 13, Spado learns the art of earning money, a lesson that will form his life in the years to come. His first business venture is a neighborhood paper route, which helps him fund new interests like hanging out in front of stores, small-time poker games, and pool halls. Unfortunately, card games are not always lucrative, and he is often forced to get a little creative in his paper route collections for the Rome Daily Sentinel.
0: So I asked him about this, and uh, there was a couple interviews where they said he scammed it, but I'm like, "What, what was the scam? You know, what did you do? So, uh... What he would do is uh, a lot of them would pay in advance $2 for five weeks, which I looked up. It's about 20 bucks. He goes, which even 20 bucks, he's like, was a lot of money back then. But these people, like I said, it's not a poor neighborhood. So he could show up in three or four weeks. And they're like, is it that time already? And he's like, yeah, you know. (laughs) So he'd take the extra money and use it to pay his debts. And basically he'd hang out at this store. I think it was called Arturi's. Like the owner was Tom Arturi, if I got that right, close enough. And uh, basically, this guy's a Marine that runs a store. He'd teach Ori little tricks, like how to know if somebody's hiding behind a tree. Yeah. And he's like, when you walk by, look at the tree, but he'll be moving, so look all the way around the tree. And I thought that was interesting, because what you'll see is his entire life seems to be pushing him toward the gangster life. And even though it's the accidental gangster, uh, yeah, it's like the universe is pushing this guy.
3: Accidental and quotes
0: yeah because he's really inclined for this life and it's the basic we've all kind of had these experiences he's getting to hang out at the basement of this store where they're playing card games and stuff and he's hanging out with big kids so he's getting his ass kicked it poked up yeah. and he doesn't care it's it's about hanging out with these guys and he's happy to pay the debts if he can learn from these guys and, and be with the cool kids and all that kind of shit so that's basically what was going on there the interesting thing is the Rome Daily Sentinel that he worked for actually did a piece on Ori last December, and it was nice. It was something about wow. Ori Spado leads a colorful life, or something, or the colorful life of Ori Spado. and uh, it was a nice, it was a nice article, and it had a lot of the things you read. But I think it's pretty cool that as a kid he was tossing the papers, but now he's yeah. like he's a feature story, yeah. and they do, it. <laughs> and it was a nice color piece on him. You know, it's probably a nice uh, thing to happen in your older years. Yeah. Someday, maybe the Daily Journal will be looking me up. I'm in Lafayette. I'm not that hard to find, by the way.
3: Around this same period, Ori gets his first exposure to the big city when visiting a friend for the summer. Suddenly, the high-rises back in his native Rome seem dwarfed by the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building, among other New York City landmarks. Orlando soon learns that although he's an intelligent young man, brains without discipline can only get you so far. His academic pursuits begin to suffer as he finds himself being invited to leave the school premises. Ultimately, he's kicked out more times than even he can recall, mostly due to fights in the schoolyard, but somehow manages to graduate from the Rome Free Academy, a local high school established in 1869. Partially to escape the frigid winter months, Spado enlists in the United States Armed Forces in 1963 at the age of 18 where he apparently impresses his superiors enough to be recommended for the Honorable West Point Military Academy. It's an opportunity that most soldiers would relish, but apparently not Spado, as he ultimately turns it down.
0: So the army at this time picks about 500 guys to go to Fort Belvoir, Virginia. I guess if you go, you automatically get to be a Sergeant E-5. Sergeants basically oversee junior soldiers in their day-to-day tasks. They're expected to set a good example as an NCO, which is a non-commissioned officer. And from there, you pass that, you go to West Point. So obviously, it's, a, it's an opportunity, and he takes it very seriously. Like, it's kind of glossed over in some of the interviews, like he turned it down. But really what he did was he went home, he talked about it with his father, who, of course, is excited about it and like, yeah, you should do this. But he also talked to some mentors like a teacher and a few other people. Like He took this very seriously. I I try to really paint a picture of this guy. He's got a powerful mind. He is deliberate. He doesn't do anything whimsically. This guy's a thinker, and he he evaluates what he's doing. And uh, even to this day, he's got that happy-go-lucky quality. Don't underestimate this guy. He is razor sharp. So what he finally gets to is that well, this thing is going to take like a million years to finish. You know, he goes, it's going to take like seven, eight years. That seemed like all the freaking time in the world. He wants to get out and do things and stuff. He doesn't want to be tied down like that. So in the end, it's the the length of the commitment that makes him say, I'm not going to do it. You know, so he heads back. And uh, that's how the West Point thing uh, doesn't shake out.
3: You know, we asked him, like, you regret not going to West Point? Because not everybody gets offered that. And he was like, no, I don't.
0: Yeah, he had a whole like uh, dissertation on regrets and uh, what a waste of time. And yeah, he d- he doesn't regret it. Plus, like when you see what ends up happening to this guy, saying that he graduated, went to West Point, and became a colonel or something would be relatively uh, uneventful for what this guy's got in store. Yeah.
3: <laughs> he ends up stationed in Schofield Barracks, Hawaii, but his official duties are to remain a mystery as Ori has repeatedly declined to elaborate on the specifics of his military assignments. What is known, however, is that at one point in the time span, Spado has dealings with a local brothel. The brothel story begins when Orlando is approached by some of his fellow soldiers who, like Spado, are from New York and New Jersey. The plan they propose is that the group of young guys head up to the brothel, throw their weight around, and maybe get a little bit of action for free.
0: Ori's talking about these guys. These aren't, like, childhood friends of his or anything. They're just some uh, jabronis that he knows. Some dudes he met. Yeah, they're just in his, like, on his base. And uh, since they're all from New York and New Jersey, they've got this tie together and stuff. And then they approach him with this, like, we're going to go down and we're going to get some free tail, you know, because we're badasses or something. (laughs) So uh, I think their attitude is pretty naive, you know. First of all, Ori can say things and use words in a way that I cannot get away with. (laughs) So what Ori said was that, you know, he's got a different lady every week of his choice, and his attitude is basically that he doesn't need the services of this particular establishment (laughs) or what they provide. You know, and that would be my paraphrasing of a a way that only Ori could get away with saying on that.
3: Heavy paraphrasing. Yes. Spado has a bigger idea. With the backing of his fellow soldiers, he will approach the owner of the establishment and muscle in on the business. Instead of getting a little action, the newly formed gang can get a piece of the action. Convincing his friends to back his play, Ori contacts the boss of the brothel and sets up a meeting. He borrows a car, and the two of them take a drive to discuss business. Obviously, his business counterpart is not thrilled at the idea of taking on an unwanted partner. And when they reach a remote area surrounded by sugarcane fields, the reluctant partner expresses his displeasure by pulling a gun on Spido. Presses the gun to his mouth.
0: So, Ori's got a gun pressed to his face, and for the first time. This is the first time he's ever had a gun to his face, right? So he tells the guy, basically, if you got the balls, pull the trigger. But remember this, if I'm killed tonight, if I don't return, as expected, people are gonna be coming for accountability. And they're gonna cut your dick off and they're gonna find pieces of you all over this island so if you want to kill me and you got the stones do it right so the guy like uh thinks about it and relents right takes the gun away and so spado and him end up going and having dinner somewhere and discussing business and figuring out how things are going to go forward right now what you have to realize is Spado has absolutely no mob connections. He knows nothing of the mob or the mafia.
3: Not at this time.
0: Nothing. And his gang is not a gang. So nobody's coming for him. Nobody's going to... Nobody's going to cut anybody's dick off or cut anybody up. Like, it was complete bullshit. Yeah. Right? And I don't even know if Ori knew this at the time, right? Because he thinks he's got a little bit of a posse, right? But he ain't got shit. Right. Right? And uh, the brothel is organized. This isn't their first rodeo. So he's. He, this could have been the end of the Ori Spada story right here. <laughs> if he had flipped that gun back. Because uh, a better, more actual account would be like, if you got the balls, pull the trigger. Right. But there's going to be a little bit of paperwork back at the base. Missing persons paperwork. They're not going to forget about this for quite a few months. Yeah. (laughs) That's going to be the end of this.
3: (laughs) With the initial meeting a relative success, Ori returns to the barracks and describes the interaction with his partners. To his surprise, his partners are taken aback by the pistol threat and no longer want a part of the business venture. Spado is stuck between a rock and a hard place. Without backup, he can't move forward with his plans. Meanwhile, the already existing partners of the Hawaiian sex trade are assembling, as the organization turns out to be bigger than anticipated. You know, (laughs) I just picture whoever the leader of the Hawaiian sex trade is, because you got assembling here. So I just picture him, like, with his fist up saying, Hawaiian sex traders, assemble!
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you gotta figure, like, or he's thinking this is just an independent yeah little little rundown thing he's gonna take over but there's some big boss that like this is organized crime on hawaiian islands yeah. you know like yeah uh there's a private over from the base that says he wants a piece of this action <laughs> <laughs> so like or he was he was never gonna come back from another meeting No, you know what i mean and, and it's funny because at the time he wouldn't realize that now of course he does yeah like that was never gonna go well yeah you know? and his army buddies are not gonna no. You know, and that's what he had said to us. Like, uh, once these guys bailed, he goes, Who the hell am I gonna go to? Am I gonna tell the army? Am yeah. I gonna tell guys back in New York? You know, he's like, Who the hell's gonna back me up at this meeting? That's what he said. So he realized he was dead in the water. He's like, yeah. If things go south, who the hell am I gonna turn to now? And those guys were <laughs> those guys weren't backing away from a gun. They were backing away from the story about a gun. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, lesson number one in being a gangster. Know your crew. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) These guys are not (laughs) battle-tested.
3: They inform him that there is a big boss, an owner of a much larger brothel called the Diamond. They tell Orlando that he should expect a call to discuss matters further. Orlando instructs his CQ that if anyone calls for him, they are to tell him that he has been transferred. With those instructions, Ori is out of the brothel business as fast as he was in.
0: It also just gives you, like, a, talking about the gangster mind. If your friends came to you and said, hey, we're going to go down to this uh, this cat house and we're going to, I guess, what do you think? You know, they'd be like, I don't know. You know, they, would your mind go to, no, screw that. Here's what we're going to do. Yeah. We're going to go in there. We're going to get the big guy. and We're going to take a piece of this. And it's going to be our wow. cat house. He's, like, 21 years old. Right. It's that. It's fat. So... Yeah, the mind of this guy, and uh, that's one of the hardest things for me to try to get around his story and stuff. And like when Joshua was saying to me, like, how does an ordinary guy get into all this stuff? Yeah. I'm like, because he's not an ordinary guy, and he never was. No. You know what I mean? He may not have been in the mob, but this guy was a gangster in his mind from day one. And uh, to, if you really want to try to understand Orlando Spado, you got to throw down that ordinary guy shit. And start thinking, like, this is a bright mind. This is a, you know, for lack of a better term, like a Bill Gates mind in, in crime and stuff. And his brain is going all the time. And he's got balls like stone. Yeah. You know? And, and it's, it, this is just how his brain works. And this is how he operates all the time.
3: Towards the end of his military service, Spado finds love in California with a young Jewish woman he'd met in Hawaii only to find that her father is vehemently opposed to their engagement, even to the point of refusing to approve the marriage. Despite her pleas with him to stay with her, Ori sees no other option but to return to New York.
0: So this was kind of a cool story. He, uh, He actually fell in love on the island with this Jewish girl he met, and when he goes back to California she I think she announces to her family that she's in love and she wants to marry Ori and stuff and the dad is this uh wealthy Jewish businessman who lives in Beverly Hills or something and he's like yeah no you know it's not gonna happen so uh they have their little moment and stuff and she's like I don't care this and that and Ori's kind of weighing it and going look I'm not gonna be able to provide the kind of life for you yeah you know And it was kind of a cool story because you could tell he did uh on one hand, he loved her, you know, and it was kind of a sad that he had to let her go and stuff. Like I said, this is typical Ori. He's like, so I said, look, you may not care now, but someday you're gonna care. And it kind of reminded me of the Humphrey Bogart scene at the end of Casablanca. Mm-hmm. You, know, you won't get it today, but maybe not tomorrow, but someday and for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know. But he's like, so she left, and uh, I called another girl over. She spent the night. <laughs> Casually. <laughs> yes. Casually said it. It was like right at the end of the uh, st- after the you know. the the breakup he goes I called another chick over meanwhile
3: this girl's like at her home crying probably yeah exactly or he's getting in on with a new girl
0: so in the morning I sent her pack in uh, put on my uniform for the last time (laughs) it was just like I said I'll never do it justice (laughs) the way this guy could talk but uh, it was it was great it was a great moment
3: as a matter of course Orlando receives his honorable discharge in 1966 he returns to his hometown in New York, and his dad gets him a job at the Reaver Copper Company. His time there is short-lived, however, exactly three weeks and three days, and he soon takes a job at Kelsey Hayes, a manufacturing organization with important contacts in the automobile industry.
0: That must have made his dad just elated. Yeah. You know what I, mean? like, I pull a string, get you a job, and you're out in three weeks. Twenty, what, 24 days. I'd take and slap the taste out of his mouth, you know, like... I put my name on the line. Your guess is going to be there at least a year.
3: Not even a month. A year you're going (laughs) to
0: be there.
3: The plan is to live at home and save up his money, but in the end, he discovers that he hasn't put away a nickel. As Orlando is figuring out his professional life, he seems to be moving forward in his personal affairs as well. He announces his engagement to the lovely Antoinette Giuliano, a marriage that will eventually produce three children, arguably his finest achievement. Like most bachelors about to be tied down, Ori is thrown a typical stag party, but when he discovers that this bash is far from ordinary. Ori is sitting with his father in San Carlos, which is run by Frank Russo Jr. and his brothers. It is here that his father tells him of his grandfather's involvement in the Cosa Nostra. It is also the beginning of a lifetime friendship with Frank Russo Jr., son to New York boss, Frank Russo Sr.
0: Okay, so the big takeaway here is that Ori's grandfather and his grandfather's brother were in the mob, and I believe they had mob roots all the way back to Italy. So now Frank Russo Sr. is a boss in New York. Access to him is pretty limited overall. I remember Ori told a story about how he would hold counsel down in this, uh, I want to say it was down in some kind of a cellar. I don't know if it was a house or a restaurant or whatever, but like there's this locked door that nobody gets in. And uh, it's, it's really a top-level thing. And uh, one of the guys that does get in is Ori's grandfather. So as he, he finds out, I mean, it's, it's a rush. He finds out all this stuff. And yeah. like not only is he, he's got people that are connected, but seriously connected. So now going forward, Ori's got a pedigree that someone like you or I aren't going to have. No. You know, even if we're trying to get into the life and stuff. So he's starting at the top, so to speak, a little bit. He's got some clout also frank russo there's a lot of frank russo's and when i dove in i start research and i'm like oh great he's the uh chicago outfit guy you oh. know and uh that's actually frank the horse butcheri, right <laughs> but it made sense because uh, the chicago thing's a little far-fetched but he's got all these things going on on the west coast this guy does so i'm like oh this is the guy who brings ori up you know so i i what was it like a half a page i got on this guy and uh, Ori goes no not him yeah other guy wrong Frank Russo this is the New York guy (laughs) so it's kind of funny as I'm going over our our tapes you know yeah you hear me go like, okay Zach go ahead uh, scratch all that it's inaccurate (laughs) 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 so somewhere we lost a half a page of really good stuff that apparently never happened yeah
3: for another episode Frank Jr. is an attorney and never joins the family as a made guy, but he is extraordinarily connected and begins to introduce Spado to crime legends like his father, Frank Russo Sr., Russell Buffalino, and the legendary Frank Costello.
0: So obviously, Frank Costello is mob royalty. Yeah. You know, his his power at one point is almost unilateral. We touched on this in the Genovese episode. So in New York City, a judge couldn't be appointed without Costello's approval. He's arguably one of the smartest gangsters to ever rise to the top. And he, and he could accomplish things with a word that most guys couldn't accomplish with an army. And he's going back to the beginning with Luciano and all these guys. So the year now, it's like 1969 to 1970. So like uh, Frank Costello at this point has gone through the Valachi testimonies. He's been through all those television interviews that were a disaster, all that stuff. He survived the assassination attempt by Vinny the Chin Jigani. So all that's happened, and he's officially retired. But apparently what happens now is he just has these social entertaining dinners and stuff where uh, guys still come around from everywhere to get advice and things like that. So when Ori meets him, it's in a social context. He's Mm -hmm. not... uh, He's not at a business table where people are getting discussed yeah. about getting whacked and things like it's that. It's not like a yeah. formal meeting. No, nah, he's not. He's he's young. He's 25, and he's he's just being introduced, and it's completely social. So I'm asking him what it's like to be at a table with Frank Costello, you know, because this is something I've been dying to find out. Because they always like, oh, you met Frank Costello, okay, check, and they move on. You know, I'm like, no, what's it like to be in the presence of this guy? Right. And uh, Ori's response is, well, honestly, what I remember is just my head on a swivel checking out all the beautiful women. And, and uh, Zach and Brett are right, right there. They're <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, definitely. Man. I'm like, I could kind of tell I'm starting to become an old man because I'm like, you're at a table with these guys and you're worried about the <laughs> women? What the hell is wrong with you? His whole response to that is, you know, people put their pants on one leg at a time and he's like, I... I was told to keep my mouth shut and sit down, and that's what I did. Yeah. But he he also kind of mentioned he goes, look, I I treat him with respect, and uh, he was asked to call him Uncle Frank and stuff, you know. And it was it was a cool story. But he's basically like, I don't treat Frank Costello any different than I treat the guy in the alley or the janitor at my building or whatever. And everybody's the same, and we're all the same. And that was kind of his attitude, and uh, I believe it. I don't think it's just a,
3: no, I believe it too. A
0: mantra when you when you talk to him and stuff and like everything. Every interaction I've had with him is that—that's who he is.
3: Yeah, especially his interactions with us. That's what I get.
0: Right, he acts like you're important. Yeah, you know what I mean, which we know you're not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was a it was a cool story and stuff. But uh, I I was kind of expecting to hear like, oh, when you're in the presence of Frank Costello, you know, you, it's it's a, it's an awe inspiring moment and stuff. But uh, nah, not so much.
3: And Russell Bufalino too. If you've seen The Irishman, Joe Pesci
0: yeah yeah and, uh, he talks about uh buffalino and uh, just he was a mellow guy subdued very powerful guy yeah and very understated you know and uh he tells a story about uh buffalino like somehow him and uh frank russo jr in charge of taking care of some kid i don't know if it's a stepson or what it is but he's in jail and it's their job to like every week go and bring the guy italian food and stuff and make sure he's okay and stuff so that's basically when you're talking about he knows these guys this is it like it's an honor to do a favor for for russell yeah. and to, to bring this food and stuff like it's not like he's out doing hits right for russell buffalito you know but uh he, he did mention in several interviews if you're following him closely he said that uh pesci did an yeah. amazing job of portraying him
3: yeah. and stuff and he so. did
0: I mean, it was good, but yeah, you don't know if that's close to who the guy is. Yeah. But he says, yeah, that's who he was. Exactly.
3: Uh, he also introduces him to more mainstream legends like film producer Augustino Dino de
2: Laurentes.
0: And uh, this is where Brett gets fired up.
2: <laughs> Augustino Dino de Laurentes, born August 8th, 1919, died November 10th, 2010 was an Italian-American film producer. He was one of the producers who brought Italian cinema to the international scene at the end of World War II. He produced, or co-produced, more than 500 films, of which 38 were nominated for Academy Awards. He also had a brief acting career in the late 1930s and early 1940s. De Laurentiis produced such films as Barabella, starring Jane Fonda, The Vellici Papers, which paralleled the Godfather series, Serpico, starring Al Pacino, Death Wish, Blue Velvet, starring Dennis Hopper, 1978's King Kong, Conan the Barbarian, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, the remake of Flash Gordon, David Lynch's Dune, and the 1986 King Kong Lives. De Laurentiis also produced several adaptations of Stephen King's work, including The Dead Zone, Cat's Eye, Silver Bullet, and Maximum Overdrive. De La company was involved with the horror sequels Halloween 2, Evil Dead 2. And Army of Darkness.
3: And uh, if you listen to me and Brett's show on movies, we don't think very highly of the Academy. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I wonder which movies that he produced got nominated and which didn't. I'm I'm willing to bet a non-deserving movie won over a deserving one. But you know that's that's. If you want more on that, listen to our show. But.
0: Yeah, since you slipped it in, how do they listen to your show? <laughs> once you once you get the plug in, do you
3: like that? Do you like I slipped it in there? <laughs> Uh, we're on Apple and we're on Spotify. We're part of the Running Hook podcast network, so check us out.
0: So if they're going to Spotify, they type in what?
3: Type in the Running Hook. There you go. Yeah. At some point, Orlando finally decides to make the leap from job to career and lands at the Prudential Insurance Company. His brain's determination and charisma make him an ideal fit, and his career thrives. The insurance business is immediately something Ori falls in love with. A people person and possessing a non-stop thought process. Spado is a natural insurance salesman.
0: So at this point, I kind of stop and I asked Mr. Spado why he likes the insurance business so much. You know, because to me that that would be like watching paint dry. Yeah. You know, it's not my thing. But uh, when he answers you, you can tell that he really does love it. You know, he just recollects his love for people, how he'd go business to business, just writing up policies left and right. And when the day was over and most people go home, he'd start going door to door, and he's just not afraid to knock on doors at all. You know, and I think he just loved cold calling people and just meeting new people and, and, and selling them shit like and he's just born to do it like you're either a salesman or you're not you know yeah. And if you're not you're gonna have a miserable go of your it. dad's a salesman my dad was a great salesman yeah, <laughs> yeah he was uh, really successful still doing it yeah he, he's he's good yeah. he was great you know and he's got that quality that uh i don't have you know it's probably no secret my dad has a likability that most people don't find in me
3: he can talk <laughs> he can talk you got the talking from him though uh,
0: maybe maybe <laughs>
3: Ori quickly works his way up the ladder, even becoming a member of the Million Dollar Roundtable. Still a young man at the dawn of his career, Ori is earning more money than most men his age will see in a lifetime.
0: So, Ori's getting paychecks that he said are like $570, which is like making about $4,000 a week in today's money. And he tells us this story where he's just, he's just going along and he's not saving a nickel, right? He's living the high life. I mean, he's a celebrity you know, in his own neighborhood and stuff. But I don't think he's got his head wrapped around it yet. But one day he happens to see an older guy's check and it's about $150, right? So you're figuring that guy's making about 750 a week. Right. Right. Not, not chump change. And uh, the guy has a wife, kids, house, all that stuff. So now Ori's getting a, a different self-image of himself and he's going like, holy shit, I'm a high roller. Yeah. You know? And he's, he's realizing he's something special. Where right? I don't know that it, before that he really got... I don't think he Yeah. Yeah, he didn't understand how successful he is. Yeah.
3: Now considered one of the golden boys of the insurance racket, Spado decides to follow Horace Greeley's advice and go west, young man, go west. He requests a transfer to Los Angeles, California. The request goes unanswered, neither accepted nor denied. It seems his district manager, Sully, a man Orlando still describes as a good man, is in no hurry to give up a salesman who brings in millions a year. Spado is making so much money for the agency that he is referred to as Howard Hughes by his peers and even makes enough profits to purchase a schoolhouse. As time moves on, he becomes increasingly frustrated when an unexpected opportunity arrives. While visiting his stockbroker, Ori happens to meet the manager of John Hancock Insurance. He mentions his desire to move to California. A call is made to the West, and soon Spado is in his Cadillac heading for warmer weather. Of course he has a Cadillac. When the move is finalized, he brings his wife and daughter to Los Angeles, and even has an office on Beverly Boulevard in the CBS building. Spado fondly recalls that Merv Griffin's office was just upstairs from him.
0: Wouldn't it have been like a colorful element if you'd like, Spado packs up his 75-gremlin and his Not his style. No. no. So at this point, uh, Spato recollects that he's beginning to really enjoy the California life and all it entails. He's making connections. He's hanging out at the fanciest places. You know, he's got the jack to spend it. His reputation is starting to be built up as a successful businessman and as a great guy. And all the while, he's going around making friends, charming people, making money. Uh, The rumors of his mob connections are beginning to swirl around him. So he's getting that mystique. Which, you know, the way he talks and looks and acts and stuff, it only takes a look between friends to get the... uh, to get the Cosa Nostra label, you know, in, in full swing.
3: You think that's necessarily a bad thing?
0: I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I think yeah. it's cool. Until you get indicted, it's fine. Right? It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Until the, the, the federal agent looks up and goes, who's in the mob? <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's cool. It's cool.
3: After a year at John Hancock, Orlando is doing pretty well, but decides to make a move back to Prudential in California, operating on a straight commission basis. Not long after, Spado moves back with his wife and daughter to New York in order to straighten out dealings with his properties there. Ori owns several properties now, including the small school. It is while he's back that he starts the Ori Agency, an insurance company whose clientele primarily consists of large auto dealers. Spado is so successful in his sales methods that he develops a training program for his client's sales force.
0: So this is when things are taken off for ori he's writing deals as always, but now he's the man at the top and he's pioneering a system of sales and financing, streamlining the now standard policy of going from salesmen to financial departments, things like that. So basically when you go to a car dealership and all the bullshit you got to do, you can thank Ori for that. Yeah. He got the, he figured out the system and like people that know the business know that he was the guy who started this crap where Hey, I, you're about to sign the deal. And hey, let me let me get my manager, right? And then they're going to try to sell you the upgrades, right? They're going to sell you the warranty, the service plan, the uh, roadside assistance. You yep. know what I mean? And when they hit you all those different ways, thank Ori for that. He's the guy <laughs> that got this going. And that's part of the, the way he made his jack. Also, when he moves back, he's got all these properties and stuff. And it's the other side of Ori. The man can make a shitload of money. And the man does not manage his money. No. So he's got... A ton of money, but he's also got all these properties. He owes banks, monies, and stuff. And like that's why he's going back. He's got to go back and get his shit together. Right. You know, and, and he's the first guy to admit it. He's like, I can make money. I can't manage money for shit. you know. And like I said, I, ho- I hope that turns around. You know that. what I mean?
3: In the following years, Spado is becoming extremely successful in his business venture. He is now booking millions in premiums through his insurance business. He's traveling once a month between New York and California. He's maintaining a suite at the Warwick Hotel in New York City. The Warwick is no shack. A four-star hotel, Spado is living leisurely in the $1,500 a month suite with the whole package. Approximately $7,500 in today's economy. This is where he meets Meyer Lansky.
0: So Lansky lives in the same building as Ori, and he and Spato develop a habit of walks and conversation around the hotel. And I guess this is a regular thing. They seem to enjoy each other's company. And so we ask him about Lansky, because again, this is where I, you know, my antennas just go up. And uh, he recalls how intelligent Lansky was, that he could carry a conversation about any topic. And Of course, I'm talking about Lansky being pals with Luciano. Yeah. And I'm like, did you ever ask him about Luciano? Because that's the first thing I would have done. Like, what's 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 Lucky like? And he goes, Lucky, you know, it was good friends with Lucky, Sonny Franchese, you know. And when he talks about Franchese, it's obvious the affection Glowing. and admiration he has for this guy, Glowing. you know. And and to his credit, Franchese was there all along, you know. He did hits for Genovese. and he was. He he came up with these guys, and we think of Franchese as kind of a Brooklyn guy, but Franchese had influence everywhere yeah you know he was universal his name carried a ton of clout yep. and he his name uh, we're gonna do a show on him there's no doubt yeah but his name is up there with Lansky and these guys he's one of them you yep. know so at the end of the day I never did get the Lansky answer <laughs> like if he talked about Luciano with him stuff, yeah you know and you gotta admit at this point he doesn't know Sonny Franchese.
3: no In the early 70s, business is booming, and Orlando Spado is plotting to expand even further. The Ori agency now has agents throughout New York State, as well as 250 automobile agencies as clients. He's signing millions of dollars a year as a legitimate businessman. His plan is to take his business national. This will require a lot of capital, 12 million precisely, approximately 60 million today. To raise this money, Orlando visits his associate Dino De Laurentiis in Beverly Hills was adept at raising large sums of cash for his various projects.
0: I think this was probably Ori's greatest vision. And what he wanted to do was take his business across the country. The big limiter why people weren't doing this is if you're selling insurance in the state of New York, you need a different license to sell it in Ohio. You need a different license yeah. in Indiana. So what he's doing is he's trying to raise a bunch of money and get a bunch of independent people. And he's going to he's got this vision of this chain of independent guys working as a group. Think mafia. Yep. <laughs> right. Yep. And it, it, he's, he's going to set it up exactly like that. He, everybody's going to be independent, but they're going to be working for him. He's going to be the boss of bosses of the insurance business. You know, and that's me and in my interpretation of what he had planned. And he's traveling. He's in California. He's getting. Everything together. He's going to need a ton of jack to make this happen, though. And he's in a perfect position to make it happen. It's that thing. He's like his his fingers are inches from the brass ring, and he's about to grab it.
3: While he's away, an employee of Spado's named Jim Generali is enjoying an evening of dinner and drinks with Spado's secretary and his accountant. Trouble is brewing. The problem is that the accountant is one of three men besides Ori and his brother, who knew of a special arrangement with a Michigan insurance company to use the collected premiums to grow the Ori agency. Presumably, alcohol loosens his tongue, and the accountant passes the information on to Generale. Generale decides to cause trouble. Ori returns from San Francisco after visiting a friend who would later become his second wife. Picked up by his current wife at the Fort Lauderdale airport, Ori and his wife discuss their future and the ending of their marriage. They return to his condo, where his mother and children are playing on the beach. The phone rings, and Spado takes the call from his bookkeeper, who informs him that Dick Leamy, who is at LaGuardia Airport, is coming to New York to close his business.
0: So, to try to explain this, Ori has his insurance company. He's beholden to another insurance company. He is collecting premiums, writing deals, and all that. And there's a bigger insurance company that he's making the money for. So he passes the premiums on on a monthly basis. He works out a deal where the payments are a month behind. So where you would expect him, I collect the money and I give it to you, right? He's collecting the money, using it to grow his business. And then a month later, he pays the money. The check that he writes is $385,000. So generally, he figures out that this is going on right? And the, the accountant lets it slip. But I think in the accountant's defense, hey, he was a little drunk. Yeah. And, uh, that's my excuse for 90% <laughs> of my bad choices. And also, these guys are tight. And uh, so he thinks that he knows. It's not like he thinks he's holding on to a secret. But if you're hanging around Ori, you got to realize that he doesn't telegraph anything he does. Ori's attitude would have been like, "Why the hell would you tell? It's none of his damn business. This isn't some frivolous social thing. This is huge. Yeah, and I don't think it ever crossed Ori's mind that someone would be stupid enough, you know. And on the accountant's end, he's like, "Man, you guys are integrated in everything. How in the hell did he not know? And that's kind of what was going on. So, a communication gap there that that cost him everything. Right? And I'm trying to wrap my head around this guy because I'm like, well, he works for him. I thought they'd get along. And I'm picturing him as this pencil neck whistleblower. He's got some ethical problem. And you know you know how much I love these guys, right? And I'm like, well, instead of going to Ori as a man and saying, hey, I don't like this. We need to fix this or whatever. And working it out. He runs off and he rats on him and stuff, right? So I wasn't getting it because Ori's making him a ton of money too. But that's not what's going on. He's not a pencil neck, and he's far from it. He describes him as a big, thuggish kind of guy. Him and Ori get along great, and Ori's got every intention of bringing this guy along with him to the top. He likes the guy, and uh, he sees a lot in him. And uh, Ori was a rep for a company called Polyglycote. That's where he picks up this guy, right? And the guy's a good rep for him and stuff. But he picks the guy up when he's making about 50000 a year. Right? Yeah. He's not—he's okay. He's not making a good living, though. He's not killing it by any means, Right. Under Ori, he's making $100,000 back then, which is to say, under the tutelage of Ori Spado, this guy's making about half a million dollars a year, right? And when he hears this, he realizes there's an uncomfortable leverage situation and decides he's going to try to steal the Ori agency out from under Spado. So he's not a whistleblower he's a piece of shit that's going to betray his boss <laughs> yeah. and try to make a move right so basically this guy's another gangster uh as if or he's ever going to let that happen so now what has to happen is this guy calls the insurance company and says hey man this is this is all going to blow up because i'm going to pull the whistle on you guys and blah 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 so now this company's like hey you already got to got to get that check now we got to make it good so Ori owes these people $385,000. They want it now or in a day or something like that. Mm-hmm. You're talking about a uh, $2,600,000 in today's cash, right? So, and he's got all this shit going on with the expansion and stuff. He's leveraged out, right? So he's got to come up with the money. He almost does it, but he comes up short. Yeah. And that's, that's where this shit gets down.
3: Orlando heads immediately back to New York to meet with his business manager and his lawyer, Frank Russo Jr. Frank informs him that he's looking at 50 years in jail and recommends a younger lawyer named Louis Friendizi to represent him. Essentially, Ori needs to come up with enough money to cover the extensions. He comes up short, however, and ends up with an indictment of 11 counts of mail fraud. The legal process takes four and a half years.
0: So to explain how this goes down with the mail fraud, Ori's looking at 50 years. So, that's a felony. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, using the mail—if he had handed the guy the money, it wouldn't be mail fraud, right? But the statute of limitations is coming up, so this is how they get him. He's yeah. not going to do any time. He ends up with, I think, five years probation or something. <laughs> but they slap this felony on him, and the felony bothers Ori. Like it he, does. every time he talks about it, it's—you can see it. He it eats at him. He would—if it was his arm, he would cut his arm off. You yeah. know, he wants out of that rap, you know, because he can't vote. He can't have a gun. He might be able to vote now. I think California's changing that rule, but he can't own a gun. And he's like, you know, I'm a felon and I'll die a felon. And he even brings up a few points like uh, if Trump pardoned him tomorrow, he's still a felon.
3: Still a felon. Yeah. yeah,
0: he can't he can't scrap that away. The other thing he was talking about with mail fraud, he gave an example like say you're in a relationship with a girl and you decide to break up or whatever you dump or whatever. And you're like, you feel bad. You're going to take care of her for a while. You say, "Hey, I'll send you $200 a month. I'll take care of you." So you're in a different city now, and you're mailing her $200 and stuff. He goes, "Certain amount of time goes by, and you decide, eh, relationship's over. I've helped her enough. We're done." Hmm. That's mail fraud.
3: <laughs> that's
0: bullshit. So yeah, and that's that's. He was giving examples like that, and it's like, and it, what it is is like, it's not stuff people get busted on every day. No, but if you're in their crosshairs and they want you, they will find a way to get you. Yeah, and that's what happened with the mail fraud thing. But well, he didn't do 50 years.
3: No, he didn't. Yeah, it's I you know it's like uh, with Capone and those guys, they got him on tax evasion. They didn't get him on something big.
0: No, you know, they got him for tax evasion. Yeah. yeah. So, but that's the takeaway is that it was kind of a plea deal bullshit kind of thing, and that uh, Generali is a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the two takeaways.
3: Yep. At one point, Spado goes down to New Orleans to visit Carlos Marcello. Marcello is an American crime boss of the New Orleans crime family from 1947 until the late 80s.
0: Okay, so Carlos Marcello, when you hear like Kennedy conspiracy theories that the mob killed Kennedy and stuff, they're saying Marcello killed Kennedy kill Kennedy and I guess there was a huge investigation on this and stuff and what they determined was well, they couldn't prove it they determined that he did have the motive he had the methods and he, he was perfectly capable of doing it yeah so and he right down to the Jack Ruby assassination of uh, Oswald mm-hmm. they're saying if the mob did it he did it yeah so that's that's who Ori goes down to visit and the meeting is set up of course by Frank Costello, but Marcello's got his own freaking problems going on at the time. He's got his own uh, ass in a slum for whatever reason. I can't remember, but that's why it falls through at the last minute, but he almost saved the day with this guy, but he ends up selling it to somebody else and he loses almost everything, you know, but the important thing is he doesn't give it to generali Mm -hmm. and he, that's what he says, you know, because I was having a real hard time figuring out the dynamics with these two. And he's like, look, if the asshole wouldn't have sold me down the river, I would be a billionaire, and this guy would be a multi, multi multi-millionaire. By now.
3: Totally off topic. I don't know if this will make the show. Do you believe this theory, the mob killed JFK theory?
0: Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Do
3: you you believe Oswald did it by himself?
0: No. No, I don't think he's got the possibility. They take sharpshooters from that building that can't make the same shot. He was involved. But there's a 10-episode uh, podcast called The Hitman that's centered around Woody Harrelson's father, who is a suspect in that. And uh, they, they make a case both ways and stuff. Man, we could do a whole show on yeah, that.
3: Yeah, we could, yeah. But there's
0: three hobos in a boxcar, if you ever watch the movies and the conspiracy theories and stuff. And uh, one of them looks a hell of a lot like Woody's dad. You know? now the And the, his dad is a hitman. There's no doubt about that. But he's a kind of a low-rent hitman. And I don't see any reason that organized crime would need to go to this guy to pull the hit unless they're gonna do some kind of Oswald thing like Oswald's a patsy maybe his dad was a patsy but his dad would get drunk when he'd get arrested and stuff and talk to his lawyers about the grassy knoll Mm -hmm. this is before the grassy knoll was a thing yeah you know he'd say I'm the guy in the grassy knoll and uh that didn't show up in pop culture and stuff till a long time after he was saying that shit. Right. So it's a weird story. So, did the mob kill him? But could have been anybody. Yeah. yeah I don't know.
3: Spato also enjoys the social company of the A list celebrities, and he soon develops a certain gangster reputation with them.
0: So, there's a restaurant called Mateo's on Westwood Boulevard, and it's the place to go on Sunday nights, and Ori's normally there. So, this is where he meets President Reagan after his presidency. He had to go everywhere with his Secret Service and stuff, and he's having a little bit of a harder time getting around. So Ori would sit at this elevated platform by the doors, apparently, and when Reagan would come in, he would kind of hold on to this rail, and as a matter of course, would walk right by Ori. So he would always put his hand on Ori's shoulder and say hello to him and stuff. So by this method, he met Ron and Nancy Reagan. He said, I guess I never sat at a table with him or anything oh, yeah. like that. You know, and it's uh, still it's known who Ori is. Right. Yeah. Now, Reagan's would have dinner frequently with Frank Sinatra and his wife. Uh-huh. They would sit at the bar and smoke like Ori was always smoking, obviously, just like now. Yeah. And Frank, you're not allowed to smoke in the restaurant. So Frank would come to the bar and smoke and talk to Ori. So he has frequent conversations with Frank. He tells us one cool story where uh, Frank was a gambler. And uh, one time he, he lost a half a million dollars and like his wife's going to kill him right wow yeah. so frank's scurrying, and he's got to come up with a half a million dollars real quick before he goes home it's
3: like that you know what i mean like like frank sinatra afraid of his wife like like <laughs> like
0: if it would be like us losing our paycheck and we, can, we can't tell our wives we lost the paycheck right so he borrows the money from dean martin like dean martin just loans him half a million dollars so he won't get in trouble with his wife yeah and uh, so but Ori apparently knew him kind of well because he was like, and Frank did pay him back, you know, so he he knew a little bit about these guys and their lives and stuff. You know, it was pretty interesting. And he said Frank one time made a joke about the Secret Service there with Reagan. And uh, he said he was talking to Ori and he said, uh, I wonder how many of these guys are Secret Service and how many are the FBI watching you, you know, so he knew who he was. It was pretty cool. We were trying to get from uh, Joshua, the intern, uh, the name of uh, Frank Sinatra's wife at the time. He came through for us. It was apparently Mrs. Sinatra. Thanks, Joshua. That was great.
3: You're welcome. Uh, so, Ori also knows Jack Gillardi, who's an agent for Shirley MacLaine and Annette Funicello. Uh, we talked about Dean Martin. Tina Louise from Gilligan's Island. She was great. She was great. Ginger she
0: was great. From Ginger
3: was great. <laughs> John Voigt. Uh, Milton Burrell, the comedian. We talked about Dino De Laurentiis. And. Uh, Danny Sims, who was a Bob Marley producer. Yeah. So they were all part of the circle. Pretty cool there. Uh, The owner of Polyglyco, Walter Tyson, is getting death threats. Knowing Ori and his reputation, he goes to him for help. Ori figures it's not a credible threat. He assures his old business associate that targets are not worn before they are whacked. This does little to comfort the CEO, and he requests again that Spado get involved and see what's going on
0: and this is kind of a classic thing and like one of the things i think i drove ori crazy and it was driving me crazy is trying to get a sequence of events of when this stuff happens right because i'm like okay when did you live at the warwick and he's giving me the years i'm like i thought you were in california and he's like yes and i'm like it's not making any sense you know and uh this is what i still haven't quite got my head around spado and his crazy ass life right and he finally just gets frustrated and calls me on the phone he goes listen, I'm going back and forth from California to New York all the freaking time. Yeah. I'm solving problems. I'm fixing. I'm still doing legitimate business. I work for the queen Mary. I'm like, this is all at once. He goes, this is happening all the time. And I'm like, and all along the feds are chasing you. The FBI is after you. You're doing this stuff. Dude doesn't he's like, sleep. yes, yeah. this all happens at the same time. This is all going on. And I'm like, I go to bed with my head spinning. Like, I'm in awe of this guy. Yeah. And how he even keeps all this shit straight, you know? Like I'm saying, this guy operates on another level. Yeah. So keep that in mind as you're hearing everything that happens next.
3: Uh, so this threat brings Ori back to New York from Florida, and he finds himself in an Italian restaurant, being introduced to the infamous Sonny Franchese. The year is around 1979.
0: So Ori goes into this restaurant because he's got to find out if there's a hit on this guy. Right. So obviously he goes to his buddy, uh, Frank Russo, and Frank Russo sets him up with this restaurant meeting where they're going to ask if there's a hit on Walter. Okay, so he goes in and there's Sonny Franchese eating dinner with his wife and kids. Right. Or sits next to Sonny and they speak really quiet, like in whispers about Ori's situation. Namely, can Sonny find out if there's a hit on, on his business associate? Right. So Sonny agrees to check around and call him later. And Spado's got just enough time, he leaves him his contact information, like his phone number and anything, like his phone number in Florida, his phone number in New York, California, all this stuff, right? And uh, Sonny says he'll he'll get back to him on it and stuff, right? So he's barely got enough time to do that when Ori gets a severe allergic reaction to the fish they're eating. It messes him up bad. So he... He's, bolts up he wrecks the bathroom then he's bolting outside and he's vomiting on the sidewalk and stuff right it is a shit show and like, like his life is in danger from the allergic reaction this has just happened after he just meets sonny so sonny has two of his men take Ori to the hospital to get him fixed up so when he gets there the doctors are trying to get his name and stuff and these guys are like you don't need to know his freaking name just get him fixed up right and they're like well, wh- what's your name? He's like, look, you're not getting any names, <laughs> you know? And they're like, here's what you do. You fix him now. You don't need any fucking names and yeah. all this stuff, right? So that's what's going on. So they fix him up, and he, he manages to uh, survive. So two weeks go by, and he's taking his time getting back to Florida. And uh, he's traveling with a lady that will eventually become his second wife. And uh, he's checking his office for messages as he goes, And all he's hearing is that there's this guy calling in the morning that doesn't leave his name and hangs up. So he doesn't think much of it, doesn't realize who this guy is. So finally, they get to this town called Utica and they stay at a Ramada Inn. And he says when he first walks in the room, the phone's already ringing. So Ori answers the phone and it's a friend of his from New York on the line like, where the hell you been? Ori's like, how did you get this number? We just got here. And he's like, don't worry about that. You need to come back. Get Frank and come back here. So long story short, he gets Frank Russo. They pick up Walter and they all meet back at a restaurant with Sonny Franchese and Michael Franchese and a bunch of other people. And they hash this thing out. And uh, my impression is there was a hit on this guy after all. But Sonny finds in Ori's favor that this guy's not going to get killed and stuff. So they resolve it. And uh, apparently maybe that's where the bad blood between Michael and uh, Ori all started was with this, right? Which yeah. we don't really want to get into. I think that's all water under the bridge. Yeah. But maybe Michael Franchese had something to do with the hit or something. I'm not 100% sure on that. That's my impression. Oh, I can't can't swear to that.
3: Man.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> Once they're done, they walk outside. Sonny tells Ori that, uh, you know, he likes his style. He's got balls and stuff. And uh, he's like, when you come back uh, into town, why don't you have Christmas with uh, me and my family? You know, stop by and see us and stuff. And it's the beginning of a long friendship with Sonny Franchese and he's like tell you what when you're out there man if you ever have a problem you tell him you're with me so that's the that's how it starts
3: Sonny Franchese is a legendary underworld figure going back all the way to Luciano and Vito Genovese he is perhaps most known for speaking on a recording about his favorite method of disposing a body the method involved dismembering the corpse in a kiddie pool draining the blood, drying the severed parts in a microwave, and then shoving the pieces into a commercial garbage disposal. He is thought to be responsible for over 50 murders. It's Ori's introduction to Colombo mob boss Sonny Franchese that helps him solidify his role in the organized crime world.
0: So, it's been said in other interviews and stuff that, like, uh, people have accused him of dropping Sonny's name and doing things like that. But uh, he only did it a couple of times. And uh, one of the times, he's in San Francisco with his crew, and they're starting to make good money. And he he comes in one day, and he's like, they're all white as a ghost, you know? And they're like, man, you got to go see these guys. These Italian guys want to see you, and you got to blah, blah, blah. So, basically, the established mob of the area is pissed because he's making too much money now. Yeah. Right? So... They're like, you can't go there and stuff right now. We got to figure this out. And he's like, nah, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go talk to him. So he goes and uh, it doesn't go well. They're like, you know, you're making too much money. You should be kicking up to us. Who the hell you think you are? And it's going bad. Eventually, the way this is going is he's either going to be out of business or he's going to have to start kicking up to these guys, paying them a bunch of money. It's just not going well. But before it's over, they go, who are you with anyway? Where the hell did you come from? And he says, oh, I'm with uh, Sonny Francese. And he's like, everything changes, man. He goes, it's like he goes from being in the shit to anything you want to do is fine with us. We'll stay out of your way. You can operate here. And uh, so that's who Sonny Franchese is. And he's not, like I said, he's not just a Brooklyn guy. His influence reaches everywhere. Nobody wants to mess with Sonny Franchese.
3: I mean, imagine that what that would have done when he was in the sugarcane field with a gun to his head. Yeah,
0: that's what he would have yeah. been. He, he would have taken over the problem yeah. <laughs> if he had this connection at the time.
3: Orlando Spada has become one of the guys in Hollywood that they call a fixer. The guy people come to to resolve disputes in Hollywood. It doesn't hurt that his rumored connections with notorious mob bosses like Meyer Lansky, Sonny Franchese, and Russell Buffalino happen to be true. Everyone in the entertainment business knows that they can use a friend like Orlando Spado. As all of this is happening, Orlando Spado becomes acutely aware that he is being watched by the famous Los Angeles Gangster Squad. The squad is a law enforcement group assembled by Chief William Henry Parker III to rid Los Angeles of Italian gangsters. This is followed by an FBI organized crime task force in Los Angeles and other cities who also start surveilling him. Spado once mused that there were so many cops and agents parked on his street that if he could have charged them for parking, he could have earned a good living. Eventually, one of the agents on Ori's case begins to utilize his drug-addicted girlfriend to get information on Spado. Ori doesn't take too kindly to this and places a call to the officer.
0: So we discussed this for a bit, and uh, basically Ori calls a cop and says, you know, hey, look, you're a good guy, I'm a bad guy. If you catch me, then you catch me. But this girl's troubled. She's got problems. She's not part of this. Do not mess with this girl anymore. Or you're going to have a big problem with me. And the cop was actually cool about it and backed off and and played by these new rules. And it seems to me like this is a different culture at the time. There was some kind of mutual respect between the gangsters right. and the police that I'm not sure exists now. I don't think it does. Yeah, but at the time, there was a certain amount of. Uh, yeah like camaraderie and respect it's between. part of them. the game yeah yeah all right so this led to the conversation about his girlfriend and by extension johnny franchise who apparently they kind of hang together and stuff and uh the basic the story is that the girl and johnny both wrestle with drug addiction uh, she's hooked johnny's hooked and uh always trying everything to get him off of drugs and uh when he's telling you the story you can tell this is a painful time in his yeah. life yeah. Uh, he's going out of his way even grabbing drug dealers anybody he can think of that might provide drugs to these people and threatening them with their lives if they deal and he's like it just it just doesn't matter he once said you could uh drop Johnny off in the middle of the desert and he's gonna score it's just how it is yeah. so he breaks up with the girl as a matter of course and he still tries to help her now and again he uh There's this one sad day where he sees her sleeping in a doorway and he's like, I just can't stomach it. So he takes her and he comes up with a story to get her into a rehab and stuff and tries to get her clean and stuff. And uh, then finally, of course, in one day, he keeps in touch with her mother. So the mother calls and tells that she's passed away. And uh, you could tell this is a, it's, it's a bad moment in his life. It's affected him. Even when he tells the story now, you can sense the pain in it and stuff. And uh, it's part of the reason he went to such lengths to try to be a savior to Johnny. Because, you know, just, this whole drug addiction thing is, yeah, you know, if you've been through it, it it's it's a bad deal. So, yeah, it's the last relationship he's had to this day, long term, with a woman. It's, yeah.
3: Uh, meanwhile, Johnny Franchese is still hooked on drugs. He frequently visits Ori. Ori tries to get him straight and eventually leads him to the path of sobriety. As Ori is dropping a messed up Johnny to his brother's Michael's house, he passes an AA meeting that gets him sober for about a year. At the one year anniversary of his sobriety, he calls his uncle Ori and invites him to his meeting. Ori attends briefly to support his friend's son, only to find later that Johnny was wearing a wire. Ori is later invited to Johnny's wedding, but stays only briefly. Johnny tries to set up Ori for selling him a gun, but the case never develops as there isn't a shred of evidence, not even a gun. Johnny will eventually testify against Ori, offering false testimony to implicate him with the Colombo family. Jim Generale is apparently not finished as he tries to call Ori and discuss his mob friends Meyer, Lansky, and Sonny Franchese. Spado doesn't play ball and shuts Generale down.
0: He uh, told us a quick story where... uh generally he's at some bar dropping Ori's name and talking some shit and everything you know or he gives him a quick phone call cuts off his credit at the place and he basically <laughs> says it's like how hey, you doing pal you know <laughs> he goes it was a conversation of short words and not very mm, nice words yeah <laughs> that's the last we're going to hear of him
3: then as time's change he even gets to know a lot of the rappers and hip hop artists like Wyclef John and Jerry Wonda Haitian Jack, who spends a year sleeping on Ori's couch, even wakes him up one night to meet 50 Cent and several others that he can't remember.
0: So at this point, there's a lot of stories and they're in almost all the interviews, so I don't want to get into them too much. Uh, There's a story where he uh, is called by someone to take care of Naomi Campbell. She's got a stalker. And uh, Ori goes to a party of hers, gets the information, finds the stalker. This is before internet. So half the battle's finding the stalker. Finds him quickly. Finds him quickly. Sends two guys over there. They call Ori, and uh, he basically tells the guy he's done with her, or those are going to be the last faces he ever sees and stuff. And it's apparently effective. So he puts that up. <laughs> More
2: out. than effective.
0: And then, uh, well, you know what? I can tell you from uh, my limited experience of these sort of things, it's hard to make an impression on people. Like when you're there, yeah, 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 it's all good. And then like a month later or they get back with their buddies and they're like, screw him. It's hard to make a lasting impression on people without being violent. And uh, Ori had the, the wherewithal it. to do it. He could do it. And that's what he says. He goes, yeah, I don't think he's the guy that was ever pistol whipping people and stuff like that. But he had a gravitas. And if you ask around and check in, you know, like maybe they're like, who is this guy? And they're like, oh, shit, you don't want to mess with him. You know, he's with Sonny Franchese. So he's got that behind him, too. But uh, you don't get the sense that he has to go around doing too much. Uh, there's the Suge Knight deal, which is a good story. Like, Ori had some DVDs that were like master copies or something. This record guy's going to buy him, whatever. And uh, the deal goes south. The guy's jacking him around, not paying him. If you can imagine, like I said, it's hard to make an impression on people yeah. and stuff. So the guy disappears, never pays Ori, whatever. And uh, Ori gets a tip and finds the guy at a hotel. And he goes there. And he's basically going to throw this guy out the window or get his money. And uh, Suge Knight comes down. And Suge Knight's got to deal with this guy. And he's like, uh, look, if you let him off the hook, you and I will make money some other way. And uh, he speaks highly of Suge Knight.
3: Yeah, he likes him. Yeah,
0: he likes him. And uh, eventually Suge Knight needs to collect a million dollars somewhere or he does it and he gets like $100,000 the next day. Which, if if it's not clear by now, this is how it happens. Like, Ori does you a favor, and the money gets kicked back. Like, this isn't all out of the goodness of his heart. Yeah. You know what I mean? But somehow, some way, the money always comes back to Ori. And he's doing this kind of stuff, not once a month, all the time. And a lot of the stuff, like uh, studios will call Ori up. Uh, there's a couple having a bad marriage that's bad for the studio, right? Ori sits down with them and explains to them that this marriage has to be resolved amicably and stuff. And he's not doing it with a gun to their head. He's doing it like, like his, he best phrases it. He gives them proper advice. He, underst- mm-hmm. like, he lets them know the gravity of their situation and that there's a way forward and that you really should take it. And a lot of the stuff he's not going to tell you what he did because he's a gentleman for one thing he really is and if he handled a sensitive situation that for whatever reason people don't want out there he's never going to tell you and that's just that's who he is I've picked that up.
3: Orlando always frequents the best restaurants and hotels in Hollywood and Beverly Hills. One night after dinner, as he's waiting for his car from the valet at the Polo Lounge in Beverly Hills. One of the special agents tailing him approaches and says, Spado, we love following you because we get to eat at the best places in town, and all on the expense account with the government paying. Even with law enforcement agencies of all stripes constantly watching him, or he still continues to do his thing. Losing their tail becomes second nature. Every valet in Hollywood knows him. Often he will pull up, give them his car, walk into the restaurant, and ride out the back before the agents following him even come through the front door. Once outside, he jumps into the car of someone who has been waiting to pick him up so he can take care of his business. In 1994, Orlando Spado lands a job providing talent for the Queen Mary in Long Beach, California, under the direction of Joseph F. Prevato. It's a legitimate business venture that will last up until around 2006. Sometime in this period, he also becomes a talent provider for Andrea Bocelli, the famous opera singer. Bocelli seems to be the biggest name since Luciano Pavarotti.
0: And then after that is Elmer Fudd when he did uh, (laughs) the (laughs) rabbit. Exactly. Close to it. In
3: 1997, Ori takes it upon himself to rob the L.A. City Jail. The jail was closed down and across from the police academy. It was Ori's job to remove the cable boxes from that location, and the transportation of the equipment was the responsibility of another crew. It was after this offense that an FBI agent swears that he will see Spado in chains.
0: Yeah, in hindsight, I think even Ori would agree that stealing the cable boxes from the jail was not a good idea. No, it wasn't. This, I think he they's put a different kind of target on his back for whatever reason. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think this is really, if you look at the beginning of the end, it's the cable boxes, in my opinion. he yeah. didn't say that specifically.
2: Yeah.
3: So now we get to the problem. Guy Fattato is a big guy that's first introduced to Spado via Sonny Franchese. Fatato is not a made guy or anything like that, but he's being groomed by Sonny for the life. After introductions, Sonny vouches for Fatato and tells Ori that they can make some money together. Fatato is a rat that had been cooperating with the DEA and has since been handed over to the FBI. As Spado puts it, once you are the government's whore, you will always be their whore. He also muses that it's always the big fellas that roll over like little bitches. There are signs that Guy is a snitch. By one account, Orlando is told that Fatato was arrested for drugs and walked right out of the precinct within five minutes. Francesi assures Ori that the report is a mistake and that Fatato is solid. Why Sonny was so trusting of this rat is a mystery, but he's insistent and his word goes a long, long way. Guy Fatato comes to Ori's house and is sitting on his couch. At the same time, Ricky Lee Durani, a marijuana cocaine dealer who is sitting in a Los Angeles jail, sends his wife and two Mexican gentlemen to get a problem fixed. It seems that Ricky has a half million dollars on the streets of Brooklyn and owes it to the Mexican fellows, who Ori just happens to know.
0: And uh, Ricky's no stranger to Ori. Ricky's a big drug dealer and he makes a lot of money <laughs> in the drug tag.
3: I swear, half, half the drug dealers in the world are named Ricky. I swear! I swear!
0: <laughs> I don't know about that.
3: <laughs> Sorry, uh, to all the ricky's who aren't drug dealers. But
0: okay, well, your homework this weekend is to list every <laughs> drug dealer you know whose name is Ricky. I'd be interested <laughs> to see this. So uh, he makes a lot of money in the drug trade, and he's got multiple dealings with Spado. Okay, so currently Spado's setting up to running with legal assist or lawyering him up, as they say. Or he is also the godfather to Ricky's daughter, so these guys are tight, right? All that being said, alarm bells are starting to go off, though, because Ricky is calling way too frequently. He's, like, calling every five, every ten minutes. He's even making some kind of threats and things like that. And Ori knows enough about the prison system that uh, he knows they don't just give you a phone every ten yeah. minutes. He's like, something's up, right? So his, uh, his spider mm-hmm. sense is tingling, oh, yeah. if you will.
3: Ori also happens to know the guys in Brooklyn who are holding the drugs in cash, presumably carrying out the distribution as agreed. The two men in Brooklyn assure Ori that they are not dodging the debt, and even add that they have already secured a hundred grand that is ready for pickup. At this point, Guy Fatado asserts himself into the mix, arranging to have the hundred grand picked up immediately, which he did. Unfortunately, it was picked up by the FBI. Guy Fatado is a rat who has been wearing a wire on Spado and on members of the Colombo family, i.e. Sonny Francsi. Fattato kicked Ori a few bucks from the first collection, which is a standard courtesy for his services rendered. Fattato then makes the assertion that he will get the rest of the money, but that he'd like to set up a new deal, getting 50 kilos of cocaine from them every two weeks. He's using Ori's name to help leverage the deal, and to presumably give the Mexicans more confidence that the deal is a good risk. His real aim, however, is to get Spado's name on the wire conversation to help build a RICO conspiracy case. Having only received one-fifth of the money they are out already, it is not very likely the Mexicans will feel like coughing up 50 kilos of anything. Fatado then instructs Ori to introduce him to Johnny Francesi, per the wishes of Sonny. Unbeknownst to Ori, Fatado and Johnny are well acquainted, as they are conspiring to set him up and anyone else they can rope into this bogus drug deal. To complete the trifecta, Ricky Durani is part of the setup. The meeting is set up at a restaurant. Ori is sitting between the two rats, both Wired. Fatata goes back to New York and meets up with Colombo Capo Michael Catapano and tells him all about the big new drug deal that, quote, he and Ori have going. In reality, there is no cocaine deal. Ori's only interest is in retrieving the 400 grand balance from New York, to which he would get a cut of about 50 grand for services rendered. Catapano is the nephew of and answers to Sonny Francesi, and when no drug deal transpires, he informs his boss that Ori has been doing big drug deals behind his back and not kicking up, that Ori is screwing him out of tons of money. Michael Catapano and Ori have never spoken personally about any drug deal. He then asks for permission to whack Spado, and Sonny gives the nod. It is all captured on surveillance wires.
0: So this is also the time when uh, a also a reporter, puts a hit on John Gotti Jr. and both of his own sons. I asked uh, Spato about this, and uh, basically, Franchese was having a bad day. You know, he's he's an older guy at this time. His mind is sharp. Don't get me wrong, but I think a lot of things are going haywire. Johnny's a mess. Johnny's working for the Feds. Uh, it's rumored uh, other other people close to him are wearing wires. We'll say that. I think he's 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 up with it. You know what I mean? And now if you can imagine, I'm not trying to justify it, but your nephew comes and tells you that Spado's been dealing large sums of cocaine behind your back and not kicking up. I think it was a kick in the nuts because he believed it. He should have gone to Spado. He should have checked it out. He didn't. And uh, that's something he, you know, he had to live with. So around this time, Johnny Franchise comes up missing. He's supposed to meet up with Ori to look at a car that he's considering buying. And instead of keeping the appointment, he calls and delays for one more day, then he disappears. So based on his past, Beto's assuming he's back on drugs and up to no good. At some point, he travels back to New York, uh, or he does, and he discusses the situation with Sonny. And uh, when it's over, he's getting ready to leave and he offers to hire a private investigator to find him. But apparently, Francesi says, no, don't do anything yet, just hold back. So, Ori goes back to the airport goes into the bathroom for a smoke and when he comes out easily approached by two young FBI agents show their badges and they're like hey you can stop looking for Johnny he's with us yeah. so or he's basically like uh that's good his parents will be glad to know that and they're like we prefer you not tell his parents or he's like they're his parents they have a right to know where their kid is right so then they lay it out that you know Johnny's with them and this is Ori's one chance to join the team he's going to be indicted too, he's going to go to jail and he's like, I think the way they said it is, you join us or this will be your last commercial flight and Ori's like, do what you gotta do he goes to a phone, he calls Sonny and gives him the bad news and uh, he, they were right, it was his last commercial flight for a long, long time
3: In 2008, Orlando Spado is arrested as part of a RICO case involving the Colombo crime family. His indictment includes conspiracy to commit cocaine distribution and a separate indictment for a home robbery. Catapano and Ori are both indicted for the cocaine conspiracy, although they have never spoken to each other about the deal. The trial was held in Brooklyn, New York. Ori is transferred from California under the pretense that there were bench warrants pending there. When he arrives, it's discovered that this was erroneous. There are no outstanding warrants, but the judicial system takes the position of, oh, well, you're here now. Assign a public defender. You know you're screwed, man. (laughs) Spado quickly learns that he is on his own. From prison, he studies his case and the applicable laws. In the end, he proves to be a quick study and wins a trial severance. It ultimately ends in a plea out for 97 months, only serving 62.
0: And you're right, he is screwed, and he's screwed by design. Like I said, they used a bogus pretense to get him into Brooklyn, because if they would have tried him out west, he's connected out to Ying Yang. He'd have had the Dream Team lawyers going in there and stuff. This would have never happened, right? But they get him out there, they seize Enrico. When you're in Enrico, they're seizing all your assets. They're taking everything, yeah. So you're you're screwed. You're at their mercy and stuff, right? So, what happens is, it all pretty much is bullshit, right? Yeah. The cocaine thing is bullshit. Uh, not that Spado's innocent of committing crimes. He's innocent thing. of this, right? And yeah. this is the crazy thing that you need to understand. If you think you're going to join this life, you're smart enough, okay? They never caught Ori Spado for what he did. They busted him for what he it's did not
3: do. Great quote from Maury. Yes,
0: yes. Yeah. and this is this is the, the crazy part of it. So there's also another indictment besides the cocaine thing. It involves a robbery, and uh, I guess what you really get the takeaway is that there's this guy, and I don't know if he's in jail or what, but he wants to get his safe from his wife. There's a bunch of money in it, and the wife doesn't want to give up the safe and stuff. So the story goes that she gets Ori and some guys to rob the place, right? They're going to get the safe. But there wasn't a real robbery, right? It's a robbery so that she doesn't have to be accountable for this money or something. That's my general take on it and stuff, right? So when they bust him for this, it'll be easy enough to figure out that it wasn't a real robbery, right? They get this woman and they extradite her to another country or something so she's not a material witness in the trial and stuff. So... This is what they're going to stick to him with. They're going to get him for a robbery, right? Also, there's a witness saying that before the robbery, Ori gave somebody a gun. That's a huge deal, right? Ori's adamant there's no way this guy saw him give somebody else a gun because he wasn't in the room. Yeah. And he doesn't say he gave him a gun, but he never specifically says he didn't give the guy a gun. But what he knows for sure is... This guy was not an eyewitness to any gun transfer if it happened. Yeah. Okay. That's my read on that. So what it ends up being is they give him 60 days for the robbery portion, but there's mandatory sentencing on the gun crime, which is about 60 months. Mm. So if you're following this, he's going to do about five years for the shit that Either didn't happen, or there's absolutely no shred of evidence that it happens. Yeah. You've only got the testimony of somebody who's probably lying, saying they saw it. Welcome to Rico. Yeah. Okay. So later on, the the interesting fact about this is the 924C gun charge is deemed by the Supreme Court to be unlawful, and this is in June of 2019, I believe. And uh, yeah, pretty recent. Yeah. So. Or he discovers that he can have that charge vacated, right? Now, he's already done the time, obviously, but he can have the charge vacated. But here we go back to the judicial system. It turns out if he does that, they can bring back the old charges of cocaine conspiracy and stuff. And then he's looking at, he was looking at, what, 50 life. He's looking at life. Yeah. So all that's back from the dead, even though the statute of limitations on that is gone. So it's just, you know, It becomes a situation of uh, walk away, Ori, walk away, you know, and uh, but the interesting part is he gets into it like when he's in jail, he's studying these books and he's dealing with other guys and uh, they're figuring out their own shit. And I think some of the best advice he's like, don't throw yourselves at the mercy of a public defender. They're not in your best interest. They're going to wipe the floor with you and move on to somebody else. He's like, he got himself out, not by making a deal, not by ratting. There are no proper statements that Orlando Spado ever signed. Right. And he defies anyone to produce them. Right. He's like, and he even points out when everybody got busted, everybody's walking out on bail, not him. Yep. They keep him. Right. So there's no evidence that he would ever, ever turn coat on anyone. But he basically dealt with his own problems and he used his own brain to get himself out of it. You know, he got his own severance and stuff. He filed those motions himself and everything. And he, he got out, you know. Well, he got out quicker than, than normal. Now, his prison time, he doesn't speak fondly of it. No. But he went in as an Italian gangster, and he says it wasn't hard time. You know, he doesn't recommend it. He doesn't want to yeah. relive it. And uh, far from it, he would go out of his way to keep anybody else from following that course of action. But his time in there could have been a hell of a lot worse if he wasn't Orlando Spado. Yep.
3: Ori finished his time at the u.s federal prison in lompoc and returned to beverly hills where he is involved in a few film projects and other legitimate businesses this year he staged a comeback appearing on numerous platforms to tell his story and to warn young people of the pitfalls of the life he's chosen this concludes the legend of orlando ori spado
0: all right so great story and uh Obviously, Orlando is pitching a book, The Accidental Gangster. Now, there was an old version out, but this has a hundred more pages. It's got letters he's written and stuff. And as cool as this was and everything we told you, we haven't told you shit. Yeah. uh, There's so many details and things that he obviously held back that I highly encourage you, A, because it's a great story. If you're into the gangster life and stuff, this guy was in the thick of it. And he's going to get you as close as most people are ever going to get to it. Uh, Secondly, this is a great guy. uh, Really good guy. Yeah, and be a part of his comeback story. After I met him, it's like I wanted to buy the book just to get this guy back on top and to be a part of it yeah and uh, i'd highly encourage that he's got a million other things going on if you go to the accidental you'll see all the things he's got cooking now he bought a book publishing company where he's going to help authors get published and stuff and actually get into stores like uh not just amazon but in the the walmarts and things like that and uh you can check him out on uh, instagram the accidental gangster he's there you go to his website like i said um what was his other thing? get going. On? Oh, he's starting a podcast. Yeah, he took it a year ago. He didn't with even us, know what a podcast was.
3: Somebody else, I forget the name.
0: The guy's name is John. John, yeah, yeah. John, but so he's yeah. he yeah, didn't even that. know
3: what a podcast was a year ago.
0: Yeah, you now he's going to have one. Yeah. yeah. So just a million balls rolling. Like I said, he's doing. Uh, he did the interview with us, but he's doing interviews with everybody. This guy's blowing up the scene, and not for no reason. You know, it's a he's got a great story, and B he's a great person. Yeah, you know, and I would attest to that. And uh, in us, or you got a friend for life if you ever need anything. You know, we're we're on your side. And uh, hey, it's been a long night. We're gonna call it quits, Joshua. What do you got to say?
3: Make sure to check out next week's episode,
0: Roy DeMeo. Don't miss it. Good night.
1: Well, you know what? In my book, I do say that if I could help one young man out, it was well worth it. I've helped several young men. But I even got an email yesterday from a young man that I spoke to close to a year ago from Ireland. And Ireland, and this guy's family's in it and everything, and all he stayed out of it, he's thanking me. And you know how much that means to me. Because, and as glamorous as gangsters are portrayed on TV, I like to tell you, it is not glamorous. You do not want to live your life every single day looking all around, looking behind you, and being careful of everything you do, you say, or where you go. You don't want to live your life like that there. And you don't want to be sharing our money that you earn with some other people. So it's your choice. And a young man, if they got a question, if they need any guidance, they could email me at gangster at gmail.com, and I'd be more than happy to help them and give them proper advice. I thank you, folks. This is the thank longest you. interview I ever did. I enjoyed it very much, and all you guys have a blessed day. God bless you.
0: Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.